take our Bibles, turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Like has been the case in, in most of the sermons in this series, uh, we'll be turning to a, a few other passages. This is the first one that we will be in tonight. It's going to take uh, a few minutes to get there, but 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 is, is where we will begin. I think I've shared this about myself before. The kind of cook that I am, I like to do stuff from scratch. I drove my mom crazy doing that. She would get out a box of Bisquick. Uh-uh. No, no, we don't. we're going to do this from scratch. Now, that is translated, though, into taking it to a bit of an extreme. For example, I've made my own bacon, all right, from pork belly. And it's the best stuff you've ever eaten. All right? So, if I do say so myself. So, I've done, this is the kind of thing that I like to do. So, sometime last year, I wanted to do another one of those really from scratch things. And so, I made from scratch sourdough bread. I don't mean I got a starter. I mean, I made it from the very beginning. I didn't have any idea how to do this. I had to read about how to do this, and it was a fascinating process. I didn't realize you could make bread, yeasted bread, by just putting flour and water together and letting it sit on the counter. It's all that it takes. It's not really that simple, though. But this is how it started. So I take flour, take water, pinch of sugar to give that bacteria something to eat, and you mix it together, and the instructions gave me markers along the way. In other words, what I read said, at various points, here's what you'll see so that you know that you've done it right. So the first set of instructions say mix the flour, mix the water, set it out on the counter, room temperature. It's going to get wild yeast from the air. And in about 48 hours, it's going to be bubbly and boozy. So I asked Becca what boozy smelled like. No, I'm just kidding. All right, I'm just, I didn't do that. You're going to tell her I said that, aren't you? Yeah, yeah. So, bubbly and boozy, okay? And sure enough, after 40 hours, bubbly and boozy, all right? That is definitely what it smelled like. I mean, I was in college. I went to college. All right, so yeah, so I know what it smells like. And then you take some of that, throw the rest away. I guess you could keep it, but it'd make an awful lot. You take a little bit of that, you add more flour water. After a few more days, same thing. Bubbly and boozy. Now, here's the deal with the sourdough bread. It's going to take about 10 days to two weeks. It takes some patience you got to keep feeding this thing, and all along the way, it's got to show the evidence that it's working the way it should. Finally, at some point along the way, it'll happen. You're not exactly sure until it does happen. And in a 12-hour period of time, that little bubbly and boozy mixture will double in volume. Just like that. Double in volume. And that's when you know, yes, I've got yeast. Yes, I've got the stuff that's going to make bread. And you've got less than a day to use that thing. Less than a day to use it. But your process isn't over. Now you've got to actually make the bread itself, right? So now you've got to take that starter. You've got to mix it with more flour. Maybe a little bit more sugar. Maybe some oil. A little pinch of salt. And now it's got to do the same thing. It's got to double in size. 
When it doubles in size, then you know you're ready. Punch that thing down. You make the loaf. Then what does it have to do? It's to rise again, right? In other words, this is a long extended process. And all along the way, if you've done it right, you're going to have evidence. There's going to be these markers that are going to show you, yes, this has been successful. It was a lot of work. It worked. Produced a great loaf of bread that uh, the bakery down the road does just as well. All right, so we don't do sourdough bread from scratch anymore, all right? Unless, I knew though that at some point, if at some point I didn't have bubbly and boozy, if at some point I didn't have double in size, guess what? Game over, right? Start over. This is done. This is not working. In other words, to know that the dough is working right, to know the bread's going to work right, there's got to be evidence for it. In a sense, this is what we're getting at tonight when we talk about the evidence in the Christian life for growth. In other words, there should be evidence, just as there's evidence in the dough that this is working right, that, that if, I, if I really am a healthy believer, if I'm a healthy, growing believer, There's going to be evidence. Now, don't misread this. I'm not suggesting you need to be bubbly and boozy. All right? So, if you get bubbly and boozy, that's something else. And that's not what you're supposed to be. However, there should be markers. There are indicators that say, yes, you are a healthy, growing Christian. And in the same vein, there are markers that say, yes, you are a healthy, growing church. Now, we've been in the midst of this series, What is a Healthy Church? And we've looked at a number of features of a healthy church. And for the last few weeks, we've been talking about the mark of growth. A healthy church is a growing church. So if you take your, if you take your notes, and we'll, uh, we'll end up uh, get, getting, getting to these. I don't know if we'll get to all of them. We may. <clears throat> but as we've looked at this fourth mark of a healthy church, know that a healthy church understands and pursues Biblical expectations of growth. Now, it's important to note the distinction that's made here, or at least the the clear concept that's communicated. When I talk about growth, I'm talking about this in terms of the individual and the church. We can't can't just look at a church and talk about growth and health as a whole. You've got to look at individuals, right? So it's it's, it's individual members of the body that make then for a healthy church. So this does become personal. It's a way to evaluate a church, but it's also the way to evaluate our, our own lives. So two issues we've taken note of. We go to the next slide. We've already looked at the first one, and that is the expectation of growth. The Bible very clearly says there should be growth. There should be growth. We should be growing. The church should be growing. God does expect it. God expects individuals to be growing and what I mean by that, and I think what the Bible means by this, it's not, and we've kind of tried to distinguish this, it's not just a sheer numbers game that we're talking about when we say growth. If I use the word church growth almost automatically, everybody thinks about numbers, about more people. Now that's a part that we'll mention here in just a minute. When I say growth, I mean a development of maturity. Almost like what you'd think of in terms of a child growing into an adult. You think in same, the same kind of imagery here. In fact, that language is used in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 13 that we'll be in on Wednesday nights. Talks about what it looks like when I was a child. I thought like a child. I spoke like a child. But when I became a man, right? I thought like a man. Talked like a man. In other words, there's this expectation that we would be 
growing. We would be developing in our maturity as believers in Christ. And I think that then should be reflected in the church. Alright, so if that's the case, then I think number two then is the natural second spot to go to. What does that look like? What should we expect to see in a growing church and in the life of a growing believer? What are the markers? Right? What is the bubbly boozy stuff? Right? What, what is the doubling in volume? What does it look like? And when we talk about these qualities, understand this isn't a static kind of issue. Christian growth's dynamic. It's not, it's not start here and you go here, right? I mean, there can be ups and downs in this thing. There can be challenges and difficulties in life. Understanding all of that. So when I give these markers out, you know, don't just take them as saying, well, if I haven't grown in this perfectly straight upward line, then I'm not doing this right. That's not my intent. But I do think the Bible lays out for us these markers, evidence that shows that we are engaging at least in some kind of healthy growth. So what does that look like? Alright, we're going to look at seven. There, there may be more than seven. Seven's a good number. It's the perfect number, right? Alright, uh, I don't know why I picked seven. I don't know, it just happened. I think these, are, these offer us categories for understanding growth. You may could come up with 70. I don't know. Maybe you'll get done with this and think, no, I only think three of those are valid. Alright, I don't know. But I think these do reflect the fundamental New Testament teaching. Of, of what we what is expected for us as believers and for us as a church. Alright, so what should we be growing in? What should be the markers of growth? How do we know if we're going in the right direction? Number one, we grow in number. Now you write that down and you think, but preacher, didn't you just say that numbers are not the primary evidence or marker that we're looking for. Yes, yes, that is true. That is true. In other words, when we talk about church growth, I don't assume that if a church is growing numerically, that it's therefore healthy. It may be. But it may not be. Right? There are, there are plenty of churches out there that, that are, as they would say, a mile wide but an inch deep. Okay? Then, I, then I, would, I would add then to the other side of that, just because a church is not experiencing this kind of you know, rapid, miraculous growth that gets books published and gets them on Christian magazine covers, just because a church is not doing that doesn't mean that church is not a healthy church. Okay? So there can be various kinds of numerical growth. Here, just, just stick with me here for a minute. We're not going to turned any text per se. I'm going to allude to some. I know that's a dangerous thing to do, but it's, it's referencing verses that we've already considered, and I just want to draw out this point. So we've kind of talked about this already when we talked about the expectation of growth. I do think it is reasonable to expect that a church would be engaged in the mission. Now, obviously, this one, by the way, only applies to the church as a whole. Like, you shouldn't be gaining an in number. Alright, you know, this doesn't apply to you as an individual necessarily. I mean, I'm thinking as the church, the church should be adding to their number. This is what I mean by this. There should be disciples being made. There should be evangelistic work, and there should be then the reaping of a harvest for the sake of the gospel. And I think we can assume that should be happening. 
Doesn't mean we're going to add a thousand people over the next week. Okay? Doesn't mean it's got to be rapid, explosive kind of growth. But I do think we should consider our numbers. Are we adding disciples to the body of Christ? Are we adding disciples? That's a helpful thing to ask. Are we really making disciples? Now, my assumption in this point is based off of the Great Commission itself. Matthew 28, Acts chapter 1. What is it that Jesus tells us in Matthew 28? He says to go into all the world, preach the gospel, and make disciples, right? Baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things I have commanded you. Now, feel free to tell me if I'm reading into this. But if Jesus commands me not to try and make disciples, right? He says, make them. Make them. That's not to say I'm responsible for salvation. That's not what I'm getting at. What I'm suggesting is, there is every reasonable expectation that if a church is faithfully engaged in the mission, then that church can expect to reach lost people with the gospel and see those people discipled for the sake of Jesus Christ. We should be seeing some numbers like that. That kind of thing should be happening. I mean, Jesus Himself told His disciples, John chapter 4, we talked about this before a few weeks ago, when the disciples saw the Samaritans coming back after Jesus had you know, told the woman at the well everything about her, she goes back to, to her village and she says, come see this man who tells me everything about myself. And, and as, as they're coming back, Jesus is with His disciples. He's looking at the Samaritans. And He, and he says, look, look under the fields. They're, they're ripe unto harvest. Then, then we know in a similar kind of parallel passage, Jesus says, pray that there would be workers for the harvest. I wouldn't make too much of this, but I do find it interesting that we don't find many examples in the New Testament of people telling us to pray specifically for lost people. In other words, pray that people would believe the message. I'm not telling you you shouldn't do that. All right, You should. You should pray for lost people, pray they'd believe the message. What I find interesting is more often than not, Like Jesus. Jesus is praying, pray for workers. There's an assumption there's a harvest. Pray that there would be those who would be able to go out in the field. And what does Paul ask the church to pray for? He he asks them to pray more than once. He does it to the Ephesians. He does it to the Colossians. He says, pray that a window of opportunity would be open to you. Paul, Paul goes in with the assumption, there are going to be people who will respond to the Gospel. Church, I I, I just encourage you to begin thinking this way. And here's why I say this. And here's why I say it to this group on Sunday night. Because because I I think think you... It's not that I think the other folks aren't praying. I I think they probably are too. But but I I think I'd like to think you you all are really praying, alright? That you're you're really praying and that you're really concerned, that you really long to see our church be an effective evangelistic disciple making church. Here's what I'm asking you to do. This may be tough. Y'all ready for this? I'm asking you not to become so cynical about the condition you see our culture in 
that you think it is no longer able to be saved by the gospel. All right? I know that's hard, isn't it? It's hard, right? I mean, tonight we'll have on display some of the most egregious forms of wickedness in our culture. Right? Some of them will thank Jesus for it, won't they? Or, well, maybe not Jesus, but they'll thank God for it, right? Tonight's the Oscars. For you more spiritual ones who don't know. All right, okay, so tonight's the Oscars. As Hollywood pats itself on the back, okay? We're going to have an award show one night where we give each other awards, all right? I mean, because that's what it is. We're going to pat each other on the back. Whoa, what's... I get to give out the award for best senior pastor. All right, yeah, whoa, hey, great. Yeah, that's me. All right, so... All right, so that's what's going to be on display. But here's what I'm asking you. When you continue to see, when, when, when we have school boards, right, who are, who are deciding things like a student can pick whatever bathroom they want to go into. All right, this is the kind of thing I'm talking about. Okay? When, when you see churches out there who are holding prayers of blessings for abortion clinics. It's happening, by the way. It's happening. I know it's such a burden, right? Makes you angry when you see stuff like this, and you wonder what could possibly what I mean, how could it get any worse? And then you wake up tomorrow and you see, oh, it just got worse. All right, whatever it may be. You just think, oh, it's just, yeah, it just got worse. Here's what I'm asking you to do. I'm asking you to believe that the gospel is still the power of God unto salvation to those who believe. And that we would not become so cynical about the condition of our culture, that we think that the gospel can't reach people in it. It can. It can. I promise you, it was, it's no harder to preach the gospel in this culture than in that one. Right? At least in this one, we still keep our heads on. At least in our country. Right? So, so understand, there, there, is still, there are people out there who are ready to respond to the gospel. They are. God's, God's at work, right? God's at work in human arts. Is He at work any less because there's a more sinful culture, at least in our minds, that's what we call it? Well, no. God's still in control of His kingdom, right? God's still in the business of saving people, and He's still charged the church with this responsibility. So, we should expect on some level then to see some kind of growth. In fact, maybe we scratch out the word number and we put in the, the word people. Maybe that'd be better. That the word number, again, can be misleading perhaps. So maybe we should just put, it, put in the word people. Right? We grow, we grow in, in, in people. That there are real disciples that are, that are being made. Alright? So that's, that's number one. Number two. I think a second marker of growth, piece of evidence, is reputation. Our reputation. And this, this is, again, where it may get a little personal. Your reputation, my reputation. Our reputation. So, yours, mine, ours, okay? As a whole. Now, this is, now we're going to get into 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. This, this by the way, is not the only example. And, and just to, as a refresher, if you remember some of those verses we went through in Acts, this was a consistent feature of the early church. That the early church had a reputation, had a good reputation, all right? In other words, people knew about them and their faith in the Lord, and, and this, this was a, it, was, it was a positive reputation. No, okay, verse 2, notice what 
how Paul commends the church in Thessalonica. We give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith, labor of love, and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, in the sight of our God and Father, knowing, beloved brethren, your election before God. So, pretty typical opening for Paul in that he's, he's telling the church in Thessalonica, I'm praying for you, here's what I'm praying for you, uh, and, and remembering you and your faith and your love and your salvation. Then he says in verse 5, For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and in much assurance, as you know what kind of men we were among you for your sake. You became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became examples to all in Macedonia and Achaia who believe. For from you the word of the Lord has sounded forth, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place. Your faith toward God has gone out, so that we do not need to say anything. For they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you. Now you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for His Son from heaven whom He raised from the dead, even Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. I, I would encourage you tonight, tomorrow, next day, it might be helpful to reread that and think very carefully about how profound that testimony really is. You'll notice there are two reputations that are mentioned here. Paul talks about his own reputation. He talks about himself and those who are with him. He says, you know what manner of ministry we had among you? Uh, in fact, he's going to go on and give more detail about that in chapter 2. That, uh, that, and Paul does this in other places. He does this in Corinthians. At the church in Corinth, he does it in 1 Corinthians. He talks about, you know, you know what manner we were, how, we, how I didn't take any money for this thing, right? He talks about his, his own integrity and honesty and ministry. And Paul says, you all know, you know my reputation. Other people knew my reputation. But what I find so striking is when, when Paul commends them and says, so, so you, you know, you believed in the gospel and, and it came in such power and with the Holy Spirit, and, and you trusted us, and you followed us, you were saved that same word, and then, what does it say there in verse 7? You became examples to all in Macedonia and Achaia who believe. <clears throat> if you want to do this sometime, you can. You can look at a map. You can ignore the rest of what I say and look in the back of your Bibles. Alright, and look for a map, and look where Thessalonica is. If you look at Greece, if this is Greece, if it's a block like this on the map, Thessalonica is up here at the top, alright? Uh, and all, 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 the, all the way in the north. And so that region up there, and then even going a little bit to, to the east of it, going a little bit to the north of it, and then going a little bit to the west of it, it was, was considered Macedonia. So you're talking about a region beyond just its city. And I, I just can't help but pause on that language about this church, where he says, you, you have become examples not only to people right around you, but all over the region. All over the region. And is that not a profound testimony about them in verse 8? 
For from you the word of the Lord has sounded forth. And notice again, he says, but not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place. Now, what kind of church do you think was in Thessalonica? You, th- you think this was like a, like a Bellevue Baptist church? 20,000 members? Probably not. You think this was a First Baptist Dallas? 10,000, 15,000 members? Broadcast on TV? Probably not. You think this was a Tabernacle Baptist church? The few hundred folks coming? Probably not. This would have been a small band of people. It wouldn't have been a mega church. It probably wouldn't have even been a small church by our standards. I mean, we're, we're, we're talking about a rather small group of people, and what does Paul say about them? The power of the gospel was so rich and real in you, and, and, and so evident in you, that you became an example to every other believer in the region, to every other church in the area, and even beyond Macedonia and Achaia. People know about your faith. Wow. That's striking to me. It's convicting to me. It should be convicting to us. Now, and, and I say that not to say you know, that, that we wouldn't have a good reputation. I just mean, wow, what a, what a thing that this church has this kind of reputation. The Word of the Lord is sounding forth from you. I love that, that language. It's, to me, it sounds like a trumpet, right? The, the, the trumpet blast of the Gospel is going out from the church in Thessalonica. And so he goes on to say there at the end of verse 8, so your faith toward God has gone out so that we don't need to say anything. Paul's saying whenever we go somewhere and we want to bring up you folks in Thessalonica, they're already, yeah, we know. Yeah, we've heard of them. We know about those folks. I, I say this as an example. This is not the only place, by the way, where this kind of thing is commended and encouraged. Or the, the idea of making sure that we have a faithful reputation is important. This, I think, is, is littered throughout the New Testament. That the church should have a reputation as being a faithful, gospel-loving, Christ-honoring, committed church. And I think beyond that then, how, how, how does a church like Thessalonica have this kind of reputation? Because of its individual members, right? So I think we should ask ourselves the question. It's tabernacle. It's individual believers. What's our reputation? Now I understand we need to be careful here, right? In other words, there are going to be some people who don't care for our kind. I know it's shocking, but did you know there's some people out there that don't like me? I know, shocking, right? But there are, okay? There's some people that think what I believe is crazy. There's some people out there that think, I'm telling you, the people in New Bern, did you know there's other churches, there's other churches in, the, in this city that think what you people believe is crazy? Okay, so in other words, I, what, when I say reputation, I'm not saying... Everybody needs to like what we think and or do. When I say reputation, it needs to be consistent, genuine, true to the gospel. 
here's what I'd want to hear. I'd want to hear that atheist say, Brother, I think what you believe is absolutely bonkers, but you clearly believe it with all your heart. Right? I'd like that person who says, Well, you know, church isn't really my thing, and I'm not really into all all that. I kind of just live my life. But man, those folks down at Tabernacle, they... What they say is what they believe. What, what they are inside the building is what they are outside the building. What a reputation. That'd be a great reputation. You've heard that, Bill? Is that what you mean? Wow. That's good news, all right? That's good news if you have heard that. Because that should be a reputation. And I would suggest that that should be a marker of growth. How do we know if we're growing? Well, we're building a faithful reputation. All of us are known for something. What are we known for? And am I known for my faith in Christ? Is our church known for its love for the gospel and the word of God? Because I've got to tell you, I'd, I don't care to be known for anything else, in all honesty. I would care to be known for nothing else. But that we love the word and his gospel. That we love Christ and his mission. This is what I'd want to be known for. What is the nature of our reputation? We should be growing in number, at least in people, then there should be a sense of growth and reputation. Let's go on to number three. We'll do one more here tonight. Twist off that link of sausage. All right? Make a new batch next week. Let's take our Bibles and turn now to 2 Peter chapter 3. As we look at number three, and that is grace. Grace. 2 Peter chapter 3. To go to the very end. Now, you may recall a couple of weeks ago, we, we took a look at the beginning of 2 Peter, where, where Peter begins this letter by saying, God has given us all these precious promises. He's given us everything we need for life, pertaining to life and godliness. And then he goes on to say, like in verses 5-11 through 11 of chapter 1, he says, so add to your faith uh, virtue to virtue, knowledge to knowledge, self-control, self-control, perseverance, perseverance, godliness, so, so he gives us kind of this blueprint here of what spiritual maturity looks like, what, 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 what should be uh, our, our, our commitment to, to our own growth. This is part of what it would look like. So we've already considered that. And if you wanted to look at that in the context of this kind of a, of a concept uh, of evidences of growth, the beginning of, of 2 Peter chapter 1 is helpful. But now turn all the way to the end because, because Peter's going to end... In essence, in a fashion similar to the way he began. Now, I'll go ahead and tell you, Second Peter is a strange book. I mean, the beginning we get, the end is pretty accessible, but all that in the middle. There's a lot about wrath and judgment and the end times. Uh, there's some weird stuff in there about Jesus descending and preaching to the captives uh, about in the days of Noah. Uh, anyway, so, so there's, there's some strange things here in Second Peter. We're not going to get into all that, but just know, here's what, what I think he's doing fundamentally. He's warning the church. All of this will end one day, right? Judgment is coming. The gospel must be preached until the end comes. And, and so the church needs to be about that business. So notice how he finishes this letter, beginning in verse 14 of chapter 3. Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things. The end. Alright? The end of time. Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, 
without spot and blameless. And consider that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation. As also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you. Alright, so, so stop there for a minute. So verse 14 could be, I could have used that in the previous point. So he's saying, alright, in light of this, this truth, the second coming of Christ, the judgment that's coming, you, you give all the more effort be diligent to be found in Him, to be faithful and spotless and, and holy and obedient. That's what he's meaning there in verse 14. And, and when he says in verse 15, consider the long-suffering of our Lord as salvation, he's telling these folks, look, I, I know you want all this to be over soon, but you're going to have to be patient. You're going to have to be patient in the midst of your trials. You're going to have to be patient in the midst of your tribulation. There's persecution this, these folks are facing. And so Peter is telling them, you're going to have to be patient. Our Lord was patient and suffering, and you're going to have to be patient. And so he says this, this statement in verse 15, our beloved brother Paul has written this to you. Then I love this little statement here in verse 16. As also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand. So by the way, if, if you ever are bothered by the fact that sometimes you read the Bible and don't understand it, you're in good company. Because sometimes Peter wrote what Paul wrote and thought, uh, I don't know what he's talking about. Alright? So it was, hard, it was hard for Peter to understand some stuff. That's kind of an understatement, isn't it? As we've been going through Romans. And we really haven't even gotten to the hard stuff of Romans yet. Okay? So yes, some of this is hard to understand. He goes on to say, which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction as they do also the rest of the Scriptures. And I could preach an entire another sermon on that, and I may bring that back in next week when we get to another one of the points uh, that I'm going to make here. I, I, I would just, though, stop here for a minute and just remind you the greatest threat to the church is not the people who deny the Bible is the Word of God. It's not the atheist, all right? It's not the unbeliever. It's not people of other religions. As hard as it is to believe, the greatest threat to the church is not Islam. It's not, it's not the New Age philosophies. The greatest threat to the church is not the, not the person who says this is not the Word of God. It's the person who says this is the Word of God and then twists what it says. This is the wolf in sheep's clothing that Paul warns about in Acts chapter 20 to the elders at Ephesus. There will be wolves in sheep's clothing who will come in among you and who will devour the sheep because they will, they will, teach, they will teach false doctrine and lead the, lead the sheep astray. Notice how Peter warns us. He's warning us about people not who deny the Bible, but those who twist it. Those who twist it. Be careful about those hucksters and fools, and I would call many of them unbelievers who claim to be preachers of the Word that flash across your TV screen, who I'm convinced if they don't repent and believe the real gospel, will spend eternity separated from God. Just because they hold a Bible in their hand doesn't mean they're believers. The devil quoted the Bible, right? The devil quoted the Bible. By the way, the devil also believes all the right theological points. He believes Jesus is the Son of God who died on the cross and rose from the dead and is coming back again. 
The devil believes all that. So be wary here. Make sure we know where the problems may reside. And it is going to be with those who twist the Scripture. Verse 17, You therefore, beloved, since you know this beforehand, beware, lest you fall from your own steadfastness, being led away with the error of the wicked. And then verse 18, you might be thinking, all right, preacher, when are we going to get to what you're saying here? All right, verse 18 is it. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory both now and forever. Amen. Isn't it interesting? What is, what is the antidote to the twisting, the unstable, to those who would lead others astray? <clears throat> What's the antidote to that? Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Now next week we'll get to that second word, knowledge. But for now, note that another marker here is grace. We grow in grace. And when we say we grow in grace, here's what I think he's doing here. I think he's giving a shorthand, so to speak, of all the things that are involved in growing in our understanding and application of the gospel. To grow in the grace of God doesn't mean I grow more saved over time. All right, that's not what he means. I think when he connects grace and knowledge, I think he's connecting our experience of the gospel and our understanding of the gospel, growing the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And I think he's encouraging then first to grow, grow in our understanding of what God's done for us in the gospel, and then how that should come out in our lives as gospel-centered lives. To grow in grace is to grow in, in what I would say would be obedience and faithfulness, to growing in, the, in, in humility and in commitment to, to what is the work of the Lord in our lives. This should be true in a church, and I think it should be true then also in individual lives. And, and I think growing in grace would also be a reminder to us that as we grow in grace, we continually grow in our understanding of our need for grace, and that grace is the context in which people do receive the gospel and do grow as disciples and should be the context that we seek to develop in our understanding of the church itself. The church should be a place of grace. I don't mean we ignore sin. I don't mean we discount sin. In fact, grace pinpoints sin. Grace is, is honest about sin. And we as a church should be then growing in these things. Alright, so next, hold on to this outline next week. Uh, we'll, we'll get to, those, to the, the final four there and uh, finish up uh, this section on what it means to be a growing church and a growing believer. Let's pray. Father God, we do thank You again for gathering us and, and doing so on this Lord's Day. We've, we've been blessed to be together. We've been blessed to come before You. We thank You now for beginning this week uh, anchored in the truth of Your Gospel and the hope of salvation in Christ, and now entering into the rest of this week, uh, knowing who we are and, and the promises You've made to us, that we can be faithful and obedient children of the living God. And so, Father, we pray uh, that, that we would be just that, that we would recognize that the days You give to us in the week to come are days to be lived for Your glory, uh, days to be lived with an eye toward what You are doing in this city and that is redeeming people to Yourself in Christ. May we be bold and courageous to be instruments of, uh, that You use in order to accomplish that mission. And Father, we thank You for how You've saved us and set us free and secured us. And now, God, may we surrender our lives to You to be used by You 
as a means to your end and for your glory. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.